This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hey, everyone. 511 has been just an incredible partner. And they've given me a promo code that you certainly should take advantage of. That is promo code CLINT, C-L-I-N-T, at checkout. You can use this code in one of their stores or at 511tactical.com. I wear their pants like every day, especially their brand new trail pant. These things are stretchy in every direction yet sturdy enough so that I can still carry a concealed gun, put things in my pockets without worrying of it bulging. I mean, they're just a great all-around pant. You can wear them outside or you can dress them up for an evening date. But whatever it is you find in that store, make sure you use promo code CLINT, C-L-I-N-T, for 20% off. Now, this isn't gonna apply to some of the sale items, but you can use it in-store or online at 511tactical.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? Uh, this is Clint, as usual. I don't think I have to say that anymore. You should know it by now. But just in case, it's Clint, not Cade. Cade used to do it, and uh, he had more of the, uh, I would say more of the conference room style where I'm more of the locker room. <laughs> anyway, uh, don't forget to go sign up for the ready room. It's a great place with a whole lot, bunch of videos, like-minded folks. And uh, we get in there and um, talk about all the things that we talk about on this podcast. So uh, go check out the ready room. And uh, I don't want to waste any more time. Today we have a decorated army special operator veteran uh, he is also a CEO, entrepreneur. He does just about everything under the sun. I actually don't know how he finds the time to pull it all off. Uh, he's got a lot of similarities, which I know will benefit today's episode. I'd like to welcome Mike Glover to the show. Thanks for coming on board, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Um, as mentioned, we're just going to dive right in and... Uh, most people that probably follow me already have been following you, and I'm sure they're excited about this. But without any further ado, we're going to jump right into your rapid fire. Uh, I'm going to call off a bunch of stuff, and uh, then we're going to circle back around, and you give me the why. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, here we go. Primitive or modern? Oh, uh, I can't do both. I, I would say primitive. Primitive. Got it. 
Okay. Bow or rifle? Rifle. Rifle. A Bic lighter or a feral rod? Bic lighter. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. <laughs> okay. A fishing pole or a fishing net? Fishing net. Yes. Beer or wine? Ooh, wine. <laughs> a good set of boots or a good jacket? Good set of boots. Yes. Uh, going fast off-road or going fast on-road? Off-road, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I thought that might be your answer, but I also saw that Corvette. Okay. <laughs> Mountains versus the ocean? Mountains. Yeah. Money or memories? What was the first part? Money or memories? Oh, memories always. Always. Okay. Yeah. And I had to throw this one in here. I'm sure you get it all the time. Army or Navy? Oh, that's an easy one. Army. <laughs> <laughs> I see you hang out with a lot of Navy guys, though. I got to say. I buds. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Circling back to the top, covering the Y, primitive versus modern. You picked uh, primitive. Yeah, I think uh, going back and defaulting to, like, sourced, proofed sound tactics that are more primitive and guaranteed versus modern, which typically means the integration of technology, which typically means there's more things to go likely wrong. Uh, I would always default to primitive over, over modern. Yeah, I agree. I mean, primitive means skills, like real skills. And uh, modern tends to leverage batteries. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right, bow versus rifle. You picked rifle. That's pretty easy. Yeah, I, I just want the guarantee. I was thinking in my mind, you know, like I, I hunt both bow and rifle. But if I have a rifle, um, I'm confident it's it's guaranteed. If I do a bow, it's because I'm exercising and experience, getting in the outdoors, pushing myself. But if, you know, I'm thinking survival or whatever the context, I want to guarantee and it's guaranteed with a rifle. Yeah. I agree. And you got to get really close with a bow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bic lighter versus the old feral rod. You pick Bic lighter. I'm with you on that one. What's your why? Yeah, it's. I think it's an easy one for me. Bic, it's just a lot of people don't realize like igniting the flame starts a fire. So you don't have to worry about ignition when you have the ability to spark the ignition immediately with a flame of a Bic lighter. So it takes away a lot of inconsistencies. Obviously, it's propane. Obviously, there are some things that can go wrong. But, man, I, there's like, what is it, 10,000 strikes per propane uh, big lighter. It's like, yeah. I like guarantee over a ferro rod. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why you'd want to make it harder on yourself, right? I mean, <laughs> if you're stressed out, it's some kind of crazy situation, a lighter is going to be a lot easier on you. Um Fishing pole versus fishing net. Yeah, I grew up a fisherman and, you know, gill nets, just nets, period. It's fire and forget. You kind of, you could leave it. Uh, you don't have to bank on your technique. Uh, you don't have to bank on specific bait. Um, so, again, looking at guarantees and statistical probabilities, I would weigh a, a gill net or a net over a fishing pole. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Once again, make it easy on yourself. A fishing pole is like one fish at a time. Whereas yep. 
a gill net is like, heck, you could go out there and check it, you know, uh, a half day later and have a dozen fish. I mean, that yep. seems like a better deal than, than just one at a time and the frustration of fishing. Okay. Um, beer versus wine. I think you, uh, yeah, you went with wine, right? Yeah, I'm a, I, I like beer and wine, but I, I just think, you know, I think if I had an option to have one, um, I would likely want a little bit more ABV. I would want the calorie. <laughs> I would yeah. want that I could age. I, uh, beer doesn't age well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I I'm looking at wine over anything else. Yeah. That, that's actually a great point. Like wine has a much, much more survivability rate than, than yeah. beer. Yeah. Beer it's, tastes. In a stand by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Going fat. Oh wait, no. Uh, good boots or a good jacket you went with boots yeah it's i I thought if i had good boots that i can keep myself warm by moving but having a good jacket and not having good boots i'd be hurting you know your feet um are your means of travel and especially in the worst case scenario and man i tell you what I've, i've had some bad feet and i've had conditioned and good feet and i would weigh a good set of boots a good pair of boots over over almost anything in survival. Yeah. Yeah. I think people underestimate how important your feet are. And I, and I'm a big proponent of that too, or I'm constantly like, Hey, have shoes on that you can run or fight in, have shoes by your bed because you just never know. And the last thing you want to do is be caught with, with bare feet and then a jacket. I mean, heck, if you got boots, you can go kick someone's ass and take their jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. Uh, off road fast or on road fast. And yeah, I'd say a majority of what you, well, at least on social, your interest with overlanding is definitely higher than that of going fast, uh, with your little POV there. Yeah. I I like cars. I like on road, but talking to some of the, you know, I did a rally, um, a few rallies last year, talking to some of the best on road guys, they'll tell you understanding um, traction, understanding car control and management, um, all the things off-road will make you a better driver on-road. So I, I would weigh, you know, the competency and capability of having the skill set to drive fast off-road, which I, which we do, um, and it's super fun over, which I think is pretty relatively easy, pretty simple, simplified compared to off-road. Um, but but it's also just funner. I, I I think it's it's the funnest experience I've ever had is driving fast off road. Yeah, yeah, and there's a there's a there's a certain level of unpredictability with that surface that can also make it interesting, and a, you get the adrenaline going. And and I agree, you know, especially both of us having kind of the same military career. When I went to driving schools at the beginning, it was BSR, it was paved, it was racetracks, you know, and it was all this cool stuff that goes fast. But then you get realistic, the real world, you go overseas a couple of times and we start wars and we do all these things. Then all of a sudden it's like, no, let's go to O'Neill's in New Hampshire you know, and that's where you really become a driver where it's, you know, you're talking gravel roads and going as fast as you can in a freaking Volkswagen. <laughs> so, and it's fun. Big course. Yeah, it is. Those guys are awesome. Um, mountains versus ocean. And I could have guessed, but figured I'd ask. Yeah, I grew up on the ocean in Daytona Beach, Florida. And then I moved when I was real young to the mountains and 
Um, I'm just drawn to the mountains. I, I have, you know, I've mount, I could see mountains from where I'm sitting and I have three bodies of water in the vicinity through lakes that are in uh, mountains. So I get my fix, whether it's fishing or on the water, I get it from the mountain lakes that are out here, but I have to be near mountains. I don't know what it is. I get anxiety when I go to like Texas or Florida because <laughs> I feel more grounded in the mountains. Yeah. No, and it's it's definitely a better view. Um, I can tell you here in Texas, it's it's fucking flat. But uh, yeah. you know, and that's why it's growing too, because you can build here for as far as the eye can see. And it's uh, it used to be kind of cool that it was that way, but now it's it's like, man, I wish we did have some barriers in the way to prevent the growth because it's just getting out of hand. Um, but yeah, the mountains are badass. Of course, you know. I, like most seals, I spent my whole career in the ocean, so I don't <laughs> mind. I don't mind not being in it any longer. <laughs> um, all right, money versus memories. You pick memories, of course. Yeah, I'm not a money guy, man. I, I, I know money guys. I know what that is. Yeah, and I just I've been a money guy, and and more, more so, I guess money is tied to material things. Like, I, I like nice things. I got a Corvette. I got some Porsches. Like, I, I like, I got a Staccato here that probably costs more than most people's cars. I mean, this thing's expensive. <laughs> like, so I like nice things. But um, if that material world burned itself to the ground, um, having spent a lot of time like you overseas, you kind of see what's the most important in people's lives, especially people who don't have money. And I would rather make great memories with my kids. Um, and we could do that dirt poor, or we could do it really well off. And I hope to be well off, but if I had to wait, uh, either one of those would be memories for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. I think it's important to go experience as much as you can in this, uh, supposed one lifetime and rack them up, especially with your family members or friends and all that. I mean, I, the best times I have and the moments that are memorable is when me and a group of guys, we have this annual get together um, in the mountains, kind of off grid, and it's just us with no distractions. And those that's that reset, like, oh yeah, I need to do this more often, right? Because a lot of the other things I do are attached to work in some form or fashion, which isn't really resetting. And um, we always say, we gotta do this more often, but then a year goes by. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and we, yeah. You know, it's uh in the other one that I, I went and did this uh show that's popular overseas called SAS and I was one of the, you know, instructors or whatever. And that too was like a moment of realization because I was with these I was the I was the token American on the show with these three other Brits. And um it was, you know, fifteen days of putting celebrities through a selection and um it was probably the best time I'd had, but it, it wasn't so much the show as it was just hanging out with those like-minded dudes and laughing your ass off for, <laughs> for 15, 15 days straight. We're laughing. Right. And it's I just can't. like, fuck, I want to do this for a living. I, I would do it for free. Like, it was just like, I, you, you just put me wherever beating people for 15 days straight. Yeah. I'm in. This was so much fun. Um, okay. Last one, army versus Navy. Of course you picked the army. Yeah, yeah. So it's crazy. Is I almost I wanted to join the navy. My my uncle was a career navy guy, and my dad was a career army guy. And yeah. there's always a debate between the two. 
And my uncle wanted me to join the Navy. And my dad obviously wanted me to join the Army. But I, I wanted to do uh, SEALs, but I, I wasn't a strong swimmer. And so I knew if I wasn't a strong swimmer, that would set me up for failure. But I, I could carry a ruck. I could run with a ruck. Yeah. So I decided to weigh Army over Navy. But I got a, a special place in my heart for, for Navy as well. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed. You hang out a lot of – got a lot of team guys that um, – <laughs> That you're doing stuff all the time, and that's awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, but I can tell you right now, you would have been fine through buds because uh, I sucked at everything and somehow managed to get through it uh, <laughs> with the same class. You know, as you know, that's important to us. I started with two hundred three and finished with two hundred three. Oh, that's um, awesome! All right, that was good, man. Good uh, little warm up. You feel you feel ready for the rest? All right, I'm ready. So, rolling in, craziest moment survival situation crisis moment whatever you want to pick what was what is the craziest moment that mike's been through where you genuinely came out of it going holy shit that was nuts and there's probably three or four things i'm never going to do again because of it <laughs> yeah i so i um an easy one for me i actually uh, wrote about it in my book prepared um was when i was pinned down on a rooftop during a joint operation with the army it's called crif now it was called sif back then when i was in it it was um b23 so it was the third group commanders and extremist force which i was a member of yeah and and a sil team um with a like as a joint op with the iraqi counterterrorism force to do a hostage rescue and i was i was one of it was two guys total, me and another guy named Chris. And we were tasked because we were snipers. We were tasked to link up with the big army and facilitate containment, which for people who are listening to this, it's basically just providing like cordon to make sure no bad guys get in and no bad guys get out. But the cordon or the containment we were setting wasn't on the objective. Uh, it wasn't on the objective building. It was on the perimeter, so it's the outer cordon with about six tanks and about five Bradleys, Bradley uh, gun vehicles. And so we were on one of the main supply routes of this road in Sauter City. And our job was simply to liaison to communicate with our RTO between the assault force and then outer containment just to coordinate, you know, like friendly fire coordination, um, not, not expecting a lot going on. But it was Sauter City in the most violent time that, you know, they were being supported by Iran. So the threats were definitely there. So as we got there, we got set up. Um, we needed to move to a high position because the RTO needed to get both close air support uh, communications with the, the fast movers and the uh, Spectre gunship that was ahead. But we also needed to coordinate with the assault force. So me and Chris decided to soft knock a three-story building, which just basically means you knock on the door and you clear it like you normally would, but it's not a raid. You know, it's like you, we just soft cleared it. So we cleared to the very top and we took an army sniper team with us, which uh, included a couple kids with, I mean, these guys were kids. They were members of the 4th Infantry Division. They were probably 18, 19 years old. Um, we got to the rooftop set up a position and began to coordinate with the assault force. But then as the breach went off and the communication from the early warning network 
which is pretty robust in Sauter City. As that went out, all hell broke loose. So we had we had uh, Mukhtar, Sauter, Mahdi militia guys running up at our six o'clock, which was difficult because tanks aren't very good at slewing their guns and trying to navigate, you know, individual people running up on us. So we had to stay on that rooftop to engage bad guys behind us and bad guys in front of us that were acting as the quick reaction force of bad guys backing up bad guys. And so, you know, long story short, it was a hellacious gunfight. Uh, we had RPGs air bursting over our heads. We had indirect mortars. We, we, we guessed they were likely 60s or 81s. I mean, you could know the difference, but it's hard to tell when your your face is pinned to the roof of the, of the building. Um, of course, yes. <laughs> so the, everything that could happen when you talk about like training for war happened. And, you know, everything from getting shot out with everything, including um, I remember one time I was looking over at my buddy Chris and we're on a third story building. And we look out in Sutter City and there's buildings that are the same level as us, but we're not thinking they're at the right angle to have effective fire on us because we're, we're at a good angle being above them. And I remember looking over and we're taking income and fire and there's a satellite dish over Chris's ass and he's take the satellite dishes disintegrating with PKM fire. And I'm like, I'm like looking at Chris, he kind of smiles at me and I'm like, don't move. And he kind of looks up and he's like, Oh shit. And he says, Oh shit. Uh, out, you know, over, I could read it, read his lips. And I remember like it was chaos and all hell was breaking loose. And I remember seeing an F 16 that we were trying to communicate with come out of the, its orbit. And I was so scared that that F-16 was going to kill us because I thought for sure it sees, which we didn't plan for, um, bad guys on a rooftop um, who are in a gunfight and potentially going to ambush the tanks and Bradleys, right? We're trying to communicate that, but we have no comms as per Murphy's Law. So I, I took a, a VS-17 panel out of my kit, which is the first time that I've deployed it. Um, and, and try to deconflict close air support, crawled out to the middle of this roof, opened up this huge VS-17 panel that was made for vehicles, so it was a bigger one. And not sure if he saw it or not, but that F-16 went down um, from home base to third base. If you remember Sutter City, it, had, it was basically like a baseball diamond and basically went down the main MSR at about 500 feet AGL and lulled the gunfight and and as it passed us I, I swear i could read the call sign on the on the on the bird it <laughs> popped players over us and we were it gave us enough time to break contact and then get in the get in the bradleys and, and get back home well the the big controversy was one we were pinned down two it was a hellacious gunfight a lot of people were killed bad guys were killed we had a couple injured and as we left, I mean, the tanks and Bradleys were just annihilating everything. When we got back home, the call came from close air support that they identified as us as bad guys. So when that call came out and we tried to communicate, um, we didn't know it. But two parts. One, the VS-17 panel I put out, the pilot saw it. But two, as that plane came out of its orbit, the combat controller with the assault force knew our our position and called he wasn't going to do a gun run he actually was dropping level to get to see with his eyes what was going on 
which is, I guess, a, c- a couple of the protocol that would allow him to break out of his orbit. And when he identified VS-17 and he coordinated with, he basically said to the combat controller, I see the VS-17. He said, Roger, that is friendlies. Roger. And then he did a low straight, he did a low run to basically uh, create a lull in the, in the, in the campaign. All of those things that took place were super chaotic. And I realized no matter how much you prepare for combat, for a gunfight, for a raid, for whatever the mission set, there could be a rolling effect of potential mini micro disasters that lead up to catastrophe. And if you're not constantly campaigning and being conscious in the moment, you know, step by step, moment by moment, and you just give up at any moment, you're like, well, man, I don't know what else to do. We'll just, if we can't get comms, let's just hide in this cupola or this doghouse. If we did that, we potentially could have took rounds on our position because we weren't staying in the fight. And, and I realized that staying in the fight isn't just staying and actually fighting, but it means staying consciously in it, staying yeah. proactive in observing, campaigning, advocating for your own survival. And um, I learned a lot that day. Um, and it was it was a crazy, sketchy moment. I remember my sergeant major in a brief uh, chewed my ass out in front of everybody in front of the SEALs. And he said, like, you should have never been up there. You should have did this. You should have did that. And I remember the combat controller stepping up and saying everything that him and Chris did and giving us communication is what helped us identify targets and threats. And what they did was heroic. And he said that to my sergeant major and my sergeant major, he didn't say anything because he was a professional. And later on, he apologized to me and he said, hey, man, good job. And so uh, it was affirmation that despite the chaos and calamity of how bad it could have gone wrong and it didn't, um, that um, you always learn a profound lesson learned, even when you think you, you, you did nothing wrong, you're going to learn something. And, and that, that was a, a profound moment in my career. Yeah, no, that's a great story. And I love the fact that, yeah, defining stay in the fight um, isn't all about just pulling a trigger or throwing a punch or whatever your fight is. It's it's being in the moment and being a thinking. We always hear it, right? Thinking shooter, thinking shooter through our entire career. Be a thinking shooter. And um, that means you're taking that moment, even though it's a split second in time and actually going through a tactical decision-making process that helps your current set of issues or just that one issue. And that could be for me, you know, same thing getting, you know, in an ambush and it was just one knee in front of the other while I'm crawling. Right. That's to that, sometimes that's staying in the fight because <laughs> if you sit where you're at, you're fucked and uh, you got to <laughs> keep moving. Um, but no, that's, that's great points. Great story. I love that, man. Uh, thank you for sharing. Hey, don't go anywhere, guys. More with Mike Glover after the break. Hey, everyone. I have a new 50% off promo code for you. It is CYSTP50 at factormeals.com. Factor sent me a bunch of no-prep meals that I really enjoyed for my lunch. The Factor meals were a perfect solution for me for fast premium options with no cooking required. I strongly recommend giving them a try, and I have a 50% off promo code if you do. Factor meals taste great and are no-prep, no-mess, so they're ready to heat and eat with no prepping 
cooking or cleanup needed. I also really enjoyed the wellness shots. Take advantage of this 50% off. Head to factormeals.com slash CYSTP50 and use code CYSTP50 to get 50% off. That's code CYSTP50 at factormeals.com slash CYSTP50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Circling back around to your childhood, what was your what was your favorite toy back then? What was your favorite little gadget or toy that you played with most? So when I was 10 years old, my dad gave me a battery-powered AK-47 <laughs> that had a rocket-propelled grenade attachment to it. And so, I mean, it's, it's comical in a couple of senses. One, back then, the like toy guns look like real guns, right? Yeah. They didn't have orange adapters or fluorescent, whatever. And so it was legitimately um, looked like an AK-47. When you pull the trigger, it did the AK full auto. And then you did the selector switch and you could shoot the RPG or the grenade off the bottom of it. But I remember my dad kind of making a joke and I didn't understand it at the time, but I was a kid who was Asian American with an AK-47 in flip-flops playing with other kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I remember he said some kind of joke and basically he was saying like, my son's like, looks like Viet, the Viet Cong out here with his AK-47 <laughs> running around. And I was, all the kids had, you know, the Rambo Uzi. Um, they had the, you know, 1911 World War II package. And I was running around with the AK-47 toy. <laughs> It was my favorite toy, man. I, I had that toy um, for years. Even when it was falling apart, I was like taping it. It was it broke. I just taped it with electrical tape. Um, but it stands out because it was my ten-year-old gift. And, and me and my dad were poor. We grew up like I grew up in, you know, a, par- a whole bunch of different apartments. And he was super blue collar, and we lived in a, a trailer park. And um, he couldn't afford much, but he went out of his way to provide a really great environment. And I remember that was the one toy that I got that year for my birthday. And that's, that's all I needed that AK 47. <laughs> and it sounds like you had a pretty sick sense of humor as well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which any, any former military guy, you better have a sick sense of humor or you're not a, you're not allowed to be part of the former military club. Um, yeah, that's pretty fun. Now, since you kind of breached the subject, being so what asian american what what, are you vietnamese or what's the other i'm half so i'm the bigger asians i'm uh half korean um (laughs) my my, so my dad was stationed in korea met my mom when he was stationed there and um yeah and and brought my mom back home they actually went to germany where we lived we were stationed for four years Uh but yeah and and half just big white guy (laughs) yeah yeah that's awesome um Okay. And then as you got a little older, what was the moment event maybe that your father or your uncle said that kind of was like, okay, yeah, I'm joining, I'm going to go serve. 
Yeah, you know, I grew up with my dad who he he wanted to make a career in the military. Um, he he did infantry at the, at that time in the eighties, seventies, and eighties. Not a lot was going on. We just came out of Vietnam, so he was a field artillery guy. He was an infantry guy, and he reclassed his last enlistment as an MP and actually got in a shooting. He actually killed a robber in Germany. And my mom told me after that, he was just done with it. He just wanted to get out. And so he went into corrections um, post-military because it was the closest thing to the military at the time. I mean, I remember him like ironing his uniform and he, he, he paid attention to the detail. I always remember him looking squared away, like he polished his boots. And so it was an easy transition to go from that into corrections because it was kind of all military guys um, and it was military style. So because he missed the military, and I know this talking to him post post all of this, um, we spent a lot of time watching Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, all the military movies. And so as a little kid, you know, even at the youngest ages, we were going to the movie theater and all we did was watch and reminisce about what I think he wanted to be part of. You know, I, I think he wanted to be in war. He wanted to fight. He wanted to serve as our family comes from a long line of service. And um, I remember distinctly, probably when I was 11 or 12 years old, um, I asked my dad, I said, hey, because my uncle was trying to convince me whenever he came back on leave back home, um, it was great hanging out with him because he was still on active duty. He would say, Mike, you need to go to the SEALs. You need to go to Bud's. And I said, well, did you go to Bud's? And he goes, yeah, I went to Bud's and he failed. <laughs> and he said, but, and, and he goes, he goes, if you go to Bud's and you fail, just be warned. If you fail, you're going to like mop decks of carrier groups for the rest of your career. And I said, well, what's the other options? I'm like, well, there's no other options, either Bud's really or nothing. And he's, and he, he enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. But he wanted to be a deal. Um, so my, my dad, I asked my dad, like, what's the best thing to do in the military? And he said, uh, being a green beret would be the best. So I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. So I made him a bet, uh, that I was going to be a green beret and I was 12 years old. And, you know, years later, probably in my twenties, uh, 21, when I went to selection 22, when I went to the Q course. So I had a green beret by 23, 24. Um, so soon after that, um, I became a green beret, which is kind of, kind of cool. It is very cool. It's very cool. And that you grew up on the same stuff I did, um, especially like, you know, Rambo and the same damn movies, same, same everything pretty much. And, uh, and I actually had the army fixation for a while until I was in an airport in Germany and this guy starts telling me some stories. And it was after, as a curious kid, we were at the Frankfurt airport and I'm like tapping on this dude who had like, you know, he could have been Marchenko himself. I don't know, but he had a black polo on. He had these tattoos on his arm. I'm asking him questions about his tattoos, and he's kind of, kind of shrugging me off at first. But finally, I'm like, hey, so you know, what do you, what, 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 what is this tattoo? He's like, it's a trident. I'm like, well, it's a trident. He's like, what's well, a symbol? It's, a, you know, he's kind of, you know, irritated. <laughs> but I, I eventually break him, and he, and he's like, okay, you know, where do you live, kid? And I'm like, oh, I live in Saudi. He's like, all right, you remember when we bombed Libya? He's like, yeah, yeah, I remember. I mean, wait, I just changed voices. Sorry. Yeah, I remember when we when we bombed, when you got when when we bombed Libya because you know Vice President George Bush came and I was the color guard as the you know as a Boy Scout blah blah blah. 
And he's like, okay, so we had to sneak in and take out the anti-aircraft guns before the bombing run. And I was like, what do you mean? What does that mean? You, you took out any crap? He's like, well, we snuck in and we killed the guys banning these guns. And then we blew the guns up and then snuck out. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's Whoa. that's exactly what I want to do. And I've yeah. told this I've told this story before. So I go same, same route. I, I, I sold me on being a SEAL. I joined do college, join the Navy, you know, become a SEAL, go go to 18 Delta, uh, then check into my SEAL team. And uh, SEAL Team 3 at the time regionally owned the Middle East. So I'm asking around all the old guys. I'm like, hey, so were you guys part of that whole, like, anti-aircraft gun, blah, blah, blah? And they're all like, no, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, it must have been, like, must have been must have been the Tier 1 unit, you know? <laughs> so then, you know, half a, half my career goes by. I end up on the East Coast. And then, of course, I'm walking around. Some of the old guys, I'm like, hey, so what's up with this whole, like, you know, anti-aircraft gun, blah, 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 bomb in Libya? And they're like, it never happened, man. That sounds like an ORE, right? An operational readiness exam. But we never did that. And I was like, holy shit. You know, my entire passion, dream, and everything was driven by some fraud in an airport in Germany. <laughs> and Ballard. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and that happens. I mean, as you know, like, you know, there's every every SEAL that, you know, somebody says they know. I'm constantly, you know, I, I'm sure, you, like, I did it with you the other day. Like, hey you know this this delta guy and it's like yeah he's fucking badass he's respected dude he's a legend but most of the time with team guys you send a name to us and we put it through the database and it's 100 percent of fraud almost all oh, the time God. you know it is it's insane how many fraudulent seals there are out there but a fraudulent <laughs> seal definitely put me on the path to becoming a seal so there you go that's so crazy you've never confirmed who that was no no just oh, some man. Cause that's in the eighties and what know. if it was Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's been known to tell a story or two, you know, but, uh, God bless us all. But, uh, yeah, he probably, somebody was bullshitting me. Um, but that's okay. Uh, all right. So now you join the army and you're, uh, you're facing all of the, uh, rites of passage. I'll call them right. And all of the rites of passage are very important in the military, no doubt about it. And uh, what you earn at the end uh, has, fuck, a long history of uh, blood, legends. I mean, you name it, right? So what were your, pa your, your, your the rites of passage that, you know, just still stand out to you today that you're like, damn, that was, that was cool? Yeah, I think, you know, as a young infantryman, because I did four years in the infantry before I went SF, um, I would say, I mean, two stand out as an infantry guy. One, my expert infantry badge, because pre pre GWAT in the 90s, when there was no war, getting your expert infantry badge as a private was a big deal. I think I think my entire platoon went out for it, and and me and my platoon leader were the only ones who get it who got it. And I was an E2, you know, I was like a private. Um, but I, as I started to understand kind of a career track and path, um, when I went to ranger school, uh, I went, I went to pre-ranger first trying to earn the slot and I earned a slot and went to ranger school and went straight through, um, out of all the schools that I went through, I think ranger school set me up for success the most because it demonstrated to me kind of this idea of suffering uh, in silence, this whole concept of embracing the suck, the suck 
and then also measuring other people based off of experience um, and, and, and looking at their tab or their shoulder and realizing like that means something, you know, and earning a tab, which is a piece of cloth that you get at clothing and sales um, that, that meant something for me. And I was very proud of that experience, but it was certainly a rite of passage because I went with a lot of guys that didn't make it. I went with green berets who didn't make it. And it, it set the foundation for me, I think as a small unit leader in tactics, uh, as a team leader in the infantry, as a squad leader in the infantry, and then eventually as a team sergeant, sergeant major in special forces, it set me up for everything. If I didn't have that experience, I don't think uh, out the gate, I would have been as successful as I was in my military career. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think I've I got somewhat of a similar, it's simple stuff for me was like buds. Um, you know, it used to be where part of the old days, the old days, um, you started with Vietnam greens. You show up to first phase. It's a white t-shirt, Vietnam greens. And your sole goal is just to get to the other side of hell week when you get to switch from the white t-shirt to the brown t-shirt, right? <laughs> now you're like, holy shit, I'm wearing a brown t-shirt. Yes. Right? A piece of cloth. But there's a lot that's behind that to get that, right? And then it's like, all right, I just want to earn my camis now right you get out of those vietnam greens and you actually earn to, the right to wear camouflage and it doesn't happen until third phase and then once you get those you're like yes i got my brown t-shirt and i got camouflage now i'm like officially in the fucking military <laughs> <laughs> up till then you're just wearing this like temporary weird shit that you know you're like fuck i just want to get out of this stuff and um i think it's funny that it's the smallest symbols, especially for me, that like meant the meant the most. Of course, getting your trident, and of, like for you, getting your green beret. I mean, these are big events, but it is those little things at the beginning that really kind of set the tone for everything else. And and how you uh, how you negotiate those obstacles is you know fuck. It's everything you know for the rest of the journey. Um. So, what would you say on? earning your green beret or making it through like an OTC situation, you know, do they carry the same kind of weight or do you feel like that's completely different worlds? So, you know, when, when, so I, I went through unit selection yeah, and, and, uh, CAG selection. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. When I went through, there was four, there was four of us that finished out of 150 guys. Um, amazing. Fucking it's amazing. The highest attrited um, selection class that I'm aware of in history. I think there was one class where like 30 people showed up and like one dude made it or something. But ratio wise, 150 guys started and only four of us finished. And when I reflect back on that experience, it was one of the proudest moments, but one of the most difficult experiences to overcome. Now, the the uniqueness in, in my career is I was one of those guys who got in trouble in OTC and actually got put on probation at the end of my uh, OT, uh, my operator training course Yeah, where they wanted me to go to the dogs to unlearn bad habits. It's basically what I was told. Like, hey, you got bad habits from CQB, from the SIF. You need to go run a dog for two years. And at the time... I didn't know. I mean, at the time, um, the dog program was classified. 
like the military dog program for MWD across the board was classified. Yeah. Now it's like now it's like that the the A squatter dog from Al Baghdadi or some raid was that <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like pissing off the White House lawn. So <laughs> so when I actually when I actually uh so when that happened, I left the unit for two years and I went back to the unit um for three years and I would say a low vis technical capacity as basically a I would say a nerd, like a cool guy nerd. Yeah. I wasn't hired skill sets of, of killing bad guys uh, with guns. I was hired for, I, I went back for my technical capability to do low-vis stuff. So I did that job, and I had the option to go back across the hall, as they call it, across the spine. Um, but I never took the opportunity because I made E8 when I was 29 years old at the unit. So oh, wow. That's fast. When I, so, so when I got back, um, there's basically a, I would just say there's a white list and a black list and promotion wise, our list isn't advertised, but you know, you, where you are in sequence by subsequence. So like if, if in the way it works for people listening, if somebody says from special forces command says, oh, we're going to promote 160 E8s, then the white side would be one, it would be one through 160 the point sevens would be on the black side. Right. So we're about operators. We're talking about dev crew guys. We're talking about everybody in JSOC. Uh, that's at, at tier one unit. Yeah. I was 159.7 oh, on the list <laughs> as a 29 year old kid. And, and so I had, op, I had a couple options, stay in the unit or take the opportunity as a newly promoted E8, 18 series uh, SF guy to go take a team somewhere. So I kind of like, you know, weighed that and then ultimately decided to stand up because they were standing up an Africa SIFS. Um, uh, Sergeant Major Bob Irby, Command Sergeant Major Bob Irby was recruiting guys from all over the command, a- including JSOC. And he said uh, to me and another unit guy, hey, you guys want to be the recce team sergeants? So I said, we'd love to, especially because we're going to Colorado. We're moving our families. We were best friends at the time. So we did that. Actually, the other guy was uh, who was a really good friend of mine at the time was Two Lamb, who runs a company called Ronin Tactics. I don't talk to him much now, but um, yeah, we, we were the guys that they got pulled from the unit to go stand that up. So when you look at the two lines of effort, completely different worlds, and for different for different reasons. But I would say the most profound is if you're at a tier one unit. You have all the support that you need. And that's a good thing. Like yeah. you earn you earn that support. If you're at a tier two unit, you are trying to acquire support in any at any means necessary, which is good for you, especially at developing skill sets like um adaptability, right? Like you're gonna get it done. You're gonna think outside the box. And so they're both great for for those specific reasons, but Man, like when I made E8, I brought my E7 uniform in bare and an S1 guy built my uniform for me. Like that's how spoiled you are. Like I don't even think I had to wear the uniform because they just photoshopped the the uniform on my, on my, on my picture. It was so, it's like so bizarre. And no (laughs) one, it's so awesome. But it was a, it was a great experience. I don't regret 
I mean, I, part of me regrets not going back and being an operator. Um, because my peers now are squadron command leadership. Um, but I wouldn't have all the experiences I had in the CIA post-military, you know, I, so I don't regret it. Um, I think about it, but I don't regret it. Yeah. Now, once again, another similarity we have, um, but circling back around to your selection, were you the class North Carolina just got pounded with like a fucking blizzard? Yep. That's the one. Yeah. It was the blizzard class of 2007. 2007. Yeah. Class of 2007 and at Camp Dawson, West Virginia. Right. And uh, I think, was there a team guy with you? A couple of them? Sorry to say that again. David Goggins was in my class. Oh, he was in the unit selection as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did he get through that? Uh, No, he didn't. Yeah, I think he got pulled. Uh, he might have made it to, like, like because we lose track of each other as we're going through. Yeah. He might have pulled. He might have fit, because there's a day if you get to that day and you get pulled that day, they classify you as a finish. So you get the credit for the, what is it called? It's called the... Uh, advanced land navigation course is the name of the course so he he i think he made it to that that point which is a huge accomplishment but he didn't finish the technical walk he didn't start and finish the technical uh long walk which is the 40 miler got it yeah yeah that 40 miler is y'all's fucking glad they don't put that with us <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, it is that's uh brutal. that's when you find out what you're really made of for sure um Especially if you were in the snow class. There was another snow class one of my good friends went to um, long before, God, I think it was pre-9-11 he went. And uh, and same thing, he just, he just didn't meet the time. He just, you know, I think he got lost for a moment because the blizzard was like sideways snow, <laughs> you know. That's just crazy. That is, that's nuts. Um, okay, so now you kind of – Get through your military career you're on your now i don't know where you you ended up doing some here in here it says 18 years is that correct yeah so i got off of active duty i think at the 16 year mark yeah and got recruited for the cia overseas in libya i was actually in libya on active duty and so i got off as an active duty e8 and transitioned into the national guard as a team sergeant now in 19th group after my active duty team sergeant time. Um, and then kind of finished up my time going in between contracting with the agency and then doing the military thing part-time. Oh, got it. Okay. So that's where it, and then did you stay in the reserves and finish out or. So I, I, I actually, I made Sergeant major. I went to the Sergeant major Academy. I did a year as an ops art major at Special Operations Detachment Africa up in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy was one of my guys um, in my J3. And then because at the time, I mean, at the time I had no life because I was deploying to Africa with the unit and then coming home and then deploying with the agency in the same. <laughs> That's crazy. Concept. So it was just, I mean, I had a stint where I wasn't home for a year. And I was like, dude, I can't do this anymore because I wanted at the time to start a business. So I resigned. In hindsight, it was a mistake. I resigned at 18 years of active service, not realizing that I had basically it's called tenure where I could have 
they would have activated me for two years to finish my retirement. But at the time, the sell to me was because of all my disability injuries, they could basically give me 100% disability. And that was a great paycheck. And I didn't have to worry about going through the two years, which in hindsight, looking back, was great because yeah, at that uh, those two years, one of the years I would have been deployed to Afghanistan and I would have had to quit the CIA job, which was helping me fund the company that I would eventually start Fieldcraft Survival. Yeah. And we're going to get in. We're about to dial into that. So, but first I have to ask, what is it like having uh, Tim Kennedy work for you? Is, uh, does he man, does he manage himself or do you have to manage him? <laughs> he, he is a silverback gorilla. And, and I love, so I used to give like, you know, I gave him a lot of flexibility. I mean, I wasn't his first line. I was his first line supervisor, but I wasn't, uh, cause we had a command sergeant major in our unit. Yeah. So, but we gave him a lot of latitude. The national guard did as we should have. I mean, he was, he was, he was fighting in the UFC at the time. And so he needed the extra time. Um, we, we treated him really good, but he also treated the unit really good. And I, I love Timmy for all, for all the shit that people say about Tim, all the things that they say, they, they don't understand who he is as at his core, at his character. He's one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. And he would give you his shirt off his back. He would die in, in gunfire trying to save your ass uh, for a stranger because he, yeah. he's just a guy, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. Me and me, cause that, we actually went to sniper school together too years back. I think in 2007, 2008, we went to sniper school together. So it was, it was funny seeing him again. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's kind of cool to see the entrepreneurial spirit and how it extends out of special operations into the civilian world, which definitely leads us into field craft. I mean, I think anyone who's into shooting into any of the survivability stuff into just being well-rounded and prepared and educated they know about you and they know about field craft but let's uh how'd you start it where did it all begin for you i was contracting in pakistan and and knew i, I had just i got put we got pushed out of yemen because yemen shut down because of the houthi uh incursion and so I was happy with Yemen. You know, I like I like deploying to Yemen. It was a good it was a good rotation. Well, when they pulled us out, they didn't know where to put us. And so it's just, it's funny because like Sean Ryan and me were because we're, I was a direct hire contractor, so I worked directly for the agency. Me and Sean got pushed to Iraq in the interim because they were trying to find a home for us. They didn't know where to put us. And so um, Pakistan opened up, and we're like, oh, I'll go to Pakistan. And so we went to Pakistan. And when I went there, they, they said, Hey, we need guys here and you're You're the guy. And I hated Pakistan. Yeah. I mean, I'm a bad was really cool. Um, the crew was great, but I just didn't like it. You know, I, I didn't operationally like I, I just wasn't fulfilled. And, and if there wasn't a war, there wasn't bad guys to go after, which is kind of where it was at that point. I didn't, I just, for the first time, I was like, well, I guess there's nothing to do now except for do something for myself. So I, I started the concept, uh, built the logo, had a guy, some stranger um, that was just an entrepreneur, like helped me with my website when I was downrange, helped me make a logo. I did all this remote from a shipping container in Pakistan and um, registered the business, came home, took back cash from that trip 
and just rolled it straight into the company and started, I think uh, it was early to, we officially started 2015. And then I launched my first product when I got back from that rotation in like spring of 2016 with a small survival kit that was made up of all the things that I used in a CIA survival course that I went to called HROC, which is high risk operations course. Um, and, and the rest is history. I mean, we've, we've been in business for seven, eight years now, um, train about 10,000 civilians a year and everything from canning and jarring first aid to self-defense. Um, I got, uh, 30 full-time employees, 50 subcontracted employees throughout the country. And so, yeah, we got, we got a lot going on. Yeah, you do. I mean, I love watching it. Uh, just, it's like everything you've, you've basically <laughs> went, all right, I'm going to, I even went and I, I, I forgot what it was. It was like a leather. I think you posted something about some cool, you know, Yellowstone like leather product. And then I went and clicked on it and I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. This guy's got some like, what, what's the name of that? That's, uh, here. Yeah. It's say a, that again. Stillcraft Frontier. Frontier. That's right. Frontier. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I fucking love it, man. I was like, I want one of those and I want one of those and I want one of those. But of course I get distracted very quickly and I just keep moving. But, uh, yeah, you've got a lot going on. And, uh, but what would you say is probably your most proud, you know, part of this whole field craft craft universe? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think I'm most proud about bringing it's it's two part similar one is bringing people together as a community because i think everything that we're doing yeah it's about preparedness but i, I think more so the biggest benefit that people have found with philcraft is they're finding like-minded people and building relationships with one another and you know i was just in phoenix arizona we had a seminar had 200 people show up and i leave and everybody's still talking, you're drinking coffee together, building relationships in their own community. And the second part to that is, which I'm most proud about as a company, is we've gotten away from just tactical and we've made it open and available to families. Like my original mission intent was to teach civilians to be best prepared for the worst case scenario. But I didn't want just gunfighters. I didn't want like the guy who carries the EDC and shows it on social media, like those guys are going to do that stuff anyway, because they think it's cool. I wanted to convince the soccer mom to convince her husband and her kids that preparedness was something that they needed to pay attention to. So I hired a gal named Amber and Amber is one of my best hires. Uh, she runs our family preparedness program called program 62 named after the, the homestead act of 1862 and she runs like a 12-week program that is the long-form version of all the things that we focus on week to week. Self-defense, canning, jarring, homesteading, uh, first aid, the list goes on. And so it's I'm most proud to see our demographic shift and involve more families instead of just more dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. I mean, I went down the same path around the same time frame as you and like I said at the beginning, man, we've paralleled unbeknownst to one another most of the way. Mine was in the form of books. And I knew that, 
you know, with 100 Deadly Skills, you had to have a sexy title and you've got to have some taboo information. But overall, it was like, how can I give all the consumers out there what they need, whether they think they need it or not, as it relates to that safety, security, survivability pieces, because I was already giving it through my main company, you know, to all these corporations. I was like, well, what if, what, what if like, if there's not a, if you're not an employee of one of my clients, well, then how are you getting this information? And of course, that's how a hundred, hundred daily skills then spawn. But you know, you doing it in the form of courses and gear. And, uh, of course me doing down the book path. Um, I definitely admire your route and everything that you've been able to build in such a short period of time. And like I said, too, at the beginning, you've built this, this fucking empire and I'm sitting over here doing the solo thing, <laughs> lonely, <laughs> drinking coffee and talking to myself, you know, but it's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you've built like some cool stuff, man. I really, uh, it's been awesome to watch it all grow at like mock speed and, uh, yeah, really proud of you. Uh, from the outside, you know, you probably never, um, may, maybe you never thought that, but I've always watched and been proud. And it's, uh, and once again, glad you're doing what you're doing. Um, it's about that time, though. We've, uh, we've come to the time where I have to now put your, all those skills, all that knowledge and experience to the test through our little crisis scenario. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> all right. Hey, don't go anywhere, guys. More with Mike Glover after the break. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Let me pull it up here. Let's see what, what our buddy Jeff built for us. Okay. You are a survivor in a post-apocalyptic United States. Man, this is right up your alley. He must have done some research. You are low on supplies, and you are starting to feel the effects of hunger and dehydration. Do you, A, look for water source, such as a river or stream, or B, look for edible plants and berries to eat? Oh, A, out the gate. Yeah. Out the gate. It's all, it always starts easy. And then here's the other thing about some of Jeff's uh, scenarios, is that, you know, the answers are built based on future issues. So <laughs> I warn you. <laughs> but yes, you are correct. Hey, look for water sources such as a river or stream. Um, you decide to look for it and you come across a pond. Pond water. What do they say about pond water? So do you A, take a sip and just begin slowly hydrating? Or B, figure out a way to filter it? Oh, filtration. Filtration. Yes vacation are always paramount so b b you are correct like i said starting easy this is easy stuff for you you should have made this harder okay <laughs> so you you decide to make a, a makeshift filter okay using your shirt and i don't know if you know this technique you can dig a hole next to the pond right and you keep digging keep digging eventually 
water from the pond will flow through the barrier of the, the dirt and the soil, that wall, into now your hole. And then it kind of filters it as it comes into the hole you just made. And then you can take your own shirt off, soak all that up, and then twist it out. It's better than nothing. What would you do? Is that something you would do? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think um, if I didn't have a container in the absence of a container, which is what that filtration through the soil system is replicating, I think that's a good tactic. I, the yeah. only thing I'd be concerned with is the type of material of the soil. If it's sand, um, if it's if it's broken down sand, that's a lot better than being in dirt and muck, which is a, a great uh, host for bacteria. Yeah. So yeah, exactly what I I would do if I right. in the container to be able to contain the water off the top and then filtrate it in some way. Okay, there we go. Um, so yeah, you filter it and it's better than nothing is really the point of the whole thing. You have nothing, so you got to get creative. After drinking the filtered water you continue on your journey and you come across an abandoned gas station. So do you A, loot the gas station for supplies or B, avoid the gas station and just continue on? Um, Well, definitely loot the gas station. I, would, I don't think I would bypass any supplies that potentially exist. I would, I would do that cautiously because I think um, everybody's watched Walking Dead and how that, how that unfolds. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I would definitely loot. Yeah, and it's funny you bring that up because it's really the rest of the humans left on Earth that become the biggest threat than the actual threats themselves, right? Yep. I mean, that's the scary part. They say, you know, if, if an EMP hit the United States and China wanted to, wanted to really stop us in our tracks, you know, within 72 hours of no power, people would be killing each other. I mean, you agree with that assessment? I do. I mean, yeah. if you see... Uh, recent history of natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, um, and man-made disasters, especially civil unrest, all the bad guys who are opportunists come out of the woodwork. I mean, I just interviewed a guy, Greg Lappin, who was a New Orleans police officer during Katrina. Oh, and yeah. the told me on that podcast, it was a it was a Black Rifle Coffee podcast, but it's like, dude, it was like the zombie apocalypse and everybody looted everything and were killing each other. And then they realized, oh, we're not going to survive with this TV. We actually need food and water. And then the bad guys became desperately in need of resources, but they didn't know how to find those resources. And that's how a lot of them died. Yeah. I mean, that was insane. I've heard some uh, incredible stories of just barbaric, crazy shit that people yep. started doing. Um, so, yes, you are correct. A, loot the gas station for supplies. Uh you decide to loot and you search. And as you're searching through a group of what appears to be hostile survivors approach the gas station. Oh boy, here we go. So do you a hide in the bathroom or subtly find some uh, improvised weapons? Oh, definitely never wanna put yourself or contain yourself in an isolated position uh, without protection, so I would weigh the protection or the weapon over isolating myself. Yes, and that is correct. Hiding, uh, you know, and for the listeners who like to give those tidbits, especially with active shooter being on everybody's mind these days, and as it should be, um, yeah, 
The bathroom is a proverbial dead end. It's probably where the word dead end was invented besides other than closets, right? <laughs> so yes, you don't want to go in there. You know, there's no way of barricading the doors, usually very small windows that most your uh, most of you can't fit through anyway. Okay. So yes, you subtly find some makeshift improvised weapons. There's a broken broom handle in the mop bucket. Boy, you got lucky with a with a broken broom handle. You grab this just in case. Three hostiles are now approaching you. Remember, they appear to be hostile. Who knows? So do you just go to town, try and kick their ass, or B, begin maybe negotiating? Negotiating. Always out the gate. You always want to perceive a threat before you react to a, a potentially imminent threat. You don't want to make it up. Um, I would definitely, I mean, also that's based on demeanor, right? If these guys look like they just came out of a post-apocalyptic scenario, <laughs> uh, that might drive my behavior differently, but I would, I would weigh making contact first before going to work. Yeah. Yep. And that is correct. I mean, any kind of threatening situation, uh, obviously environment and situation kind of dictate some of this stuff. Um, but you definitely want to, hey, 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 I don't want any trouble. Negotiation stance is always great. Great. We talk about it. Tony obviously put it in combat edition. Uh, the nonviolent posture, it works to diffuse. And these days, if somebody's got a video camera rolling, you look like the innocent one. <laughs> All right. So you negotiate and you offer to share your supplies because you're a nice guy. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of mosey about your business. Um, the negotiation worked, there was no violence and, you know, the supplies you acquired were really only enough for a day or two. So you continue on your journey without any, uh, conflict. Good job. You continue on your journey and you come across now a river with a very strong current. Okay. So do you a attempt to swim across the river? Or B, look for another way across. Um, I would always look for another way across a river. I've been in really dangerous situations overseas with rivers, and um, I would never risk that. I, would, I mean, if, if you were a competent swimmer, you knew how to set up a rope system, which I've, I've seen, I've done water rescues before, um, then that's different, but I would never by myself take that risk i would always look for an alternate means of crossing yeah definitely um correct answer we actually god i can't remember what year it was in afghanistan we had a seal um he was basically point man swim across and fuck never heard from him again you know and this was a real world gig and uh ended up finding him down river later it was uh fucking insane but uh, well you're for that. I God. Think I remember that yeah i want to say 2012 ish maybe yeah i remember hearing that. yeah that sucked i mean you just especially at night right night nods and you've got all your gear and you know obviously we we pride ourselves on being great swimmers but you know what mother nature and a river with uh with a certain kind of current with unknown obstacles and shit floating in it i mean that's all it takes is dangerous you know a, a log coming down river it can knock you the fuck out most people don't don't think that right i mean it's traveling fast enough to knock you out 
and that's and it's not really when you look at something floating down river it just doesn't seem that fast or you're floating down river and if you're not putting your feet down river so that your feet can then become the the blocking force for your skull um you know you can find yourself knocked out and uh you know drown i guess peacefully and that be that but um yeah rivers are scary especially at night with strong currents um okay so you decide to look for another way good job uh and you come across a fallen tree that spans the river all right so do you cross the fallen tree or wait for the intensity of the river flow to decrease <laughs> trick question oh yeah yeah i mean it, that that implies that it's really fast so i'm going to wait for it to decrease i'm going to sit around and wait and unless unless you know there's a time constraint or something else there but i think based on the available information there's no rush i mean i'm sitting next to a river that's likely fresh water um I, i'm gonna wait yeah and for the for the education of our listeners like which kind of river is you know, oceans ebb and flow, currents and tides with harbors and everything else that's connected to the ocean. Um, which kind of rivers, like, slow down at any given point? Is that is that freshwater? Um, or, or um, um, yeah. What is so? So snow. What is it called? The when snow it, melt. It, yeah, like. Mount, mountain mountain fed like rivers uh, tend to have a consistent flow until the ice melt. It's usually the end of summer. Hell, you can walk across some rivers in Texas at the end of summer and not even get your feet muddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're so dry. Now, if it's an ocean uh, based river, well, then that's different. Now it might have some tide current ebb flow effects on it. So you could wait in a 24 hour period and actually wait for it to, to decrease uh, in its intensity. Um, but if you're in the mountains, you may be waiting for months for the intensity. So it's important to kind of note the difference between the two. Jeff has A, you cross the fallen tree. Mm. Oh. <laughs> All right. So you decide to cross and uh, you, uh, you get across, you're successful, so it's okay. And, uh, but you suddenly feel a sharp pain in your foot. Now here comes some 18 Delta shit. All right, here we go. Do you take off your shoe and examine your foot and ensure that it's, you know, not anything too bad or B, keep your shoe on, massage your foot with your hands? Yeah, you definitely <laughs> gotta examine the actual wound. That would be, I'd be getting that boot off really fast. Right, get the boot off and examine. Now let's, while we're here though, um, do you remember things changed a lot? Probably, I don't know. I went through 18 Delta right before, what was my, so I went through the first, you know, the way the Navy broke, you're, you're familiar. The Navy, we break up 18 Delta into two pieces. We have short course, long course, short course. I went through the last one at Fort Sam Houston, uh, 90 fucking whatever, eight or something like maybe seven. I don't know. And then I went through long course at Fort Bragg uh i think it was right before 9-11 yeah right before 9-11 um and so then you fast forward through combat and the turn that radical turn that tourniquets took right uh 
I like talking about that because there's still people that hear that, hey, it's a last resort, like what we learned. Did you learn the the, the old way or the new way? Like, the, old your, way. Yeah. the old way. Certainly the old way. So you're... you're vats and sticks when i when i was learning yeah exactly and uh yeah and, and it was like last resort and put the t on their forehead and you better not you know and it was like all these other measures uh that we all know eventually leads to a tourniquet anyway especially in the schoolhouse but um same with now taking your boot off and not taking it off you know there's that whole swelling factor so i'm curious because I, I don't know anymore do people take the boot off or you know you're for the apart from this game taking your boot off implies that suddenly it's going to swell up and now you can't get your boot back on and there was a time period when they said don't do it so where is it now what's the current on like hey i hurt my foot and i'm on a hike yeah i think it's the same deal where if it's a a puncture versus a sprain you know if it's a sprain and you and then it, it likely is swelling currently where you wouldn't be able to put your boot back on or yeah. get your foot back it's better to isolate immobilize as much as possible get them off the x and then and then treat at a latter time um i would say that now if i if there's a puncture or some kind of compromise that could be a significant injury to the foot outside of spraining um that you you would try to remove it to see because it could be a compounding um, injury. It could be something that, you know, if a stick lodged to the sole of your shoe and it's sticking in your foot, like you probably need to get that addressed as soon as possible and then worry about the after effect of having, you know, immobilizing the person uh, at a later time. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so yes, A, you take off your shoe and you examine your foot. You just, um, upon examination, you notice a deep cut in the sole of your foot. So do you a clean the wound and wrap it in what cloth you can uh, you know pull away from what you're wearing or b uh, tie your shoe tighter and stop the bleeding that way? Yeah, I, I would say I would say wrap, especially if it's likely a laceration. It's not an arterial bleed. I would I would do the bandage and use compression and pressure. To stop the bleed i think compression and pressure especially being in the shoe with the bandage is likely to stop that laceration bleed i mean if it, it was if it was different if it was arterial um i don't even know if a tighter shoe it, it might i mean you would know better than me i don't i don't know if it, it would even stop the bleed but it seems like pressure and bandaging would be more effective than than just using the tied off shoe as a as an app, a tighter application. Yeah, I think so too. I think you know you have to take this uh, this scenario into account. It's apocalyptic, right? So there's not a dock in the box. There's not a place you can go to really. So you've got to take time to clean it real quick, wrap it up as best you can, and uh, yeah, and just and then you got to keep on moving. Um, I think that's key because could you imagine like phones don't work all of a sudden the smallest most minor injuries actually become very serious when you don't have any of that medical you know resources that are hell here in the North Dallas area you got a fucking dock in the box like literally every corner around here Um, it's, it's crazy how many there are 
and you can literally pull off a highway pretty much anywhere in America and get fixed, like right now. Uh, and we're so used to that. But imagine like the smallest thing now suddenly can become the biggest problem, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I think often about hygiene and maintenance, you know, basic things from, you know, you're taking care of your teeth, the, the things that we often neglect, how compounding those issues will become if you don't have those services at your disposal. I mean, a, a, one that comes to mind is Ranger School. Everybody was getting cellulitis from taking knees. So it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, like we're getting kicked out of, there's people getting kicked out of Ranger School because they're getting cellulitis in their knee from taking a knee? It's like, yeah, because when you take it, <laughs> yeah. you, your knee spreads open and you get a little laceration. And because it's so dirty and there's not yeah. a lot of height, that turns it into infection. It's like, I had facial cellulitis and it's like, holy crap, you could die from this. And you imagine post-apocalyptic, I don't think a lot of people, more people are concerned with beans and bullets than they are hygiene, but we've seen hygiene on long range patrols or long range training exercises. Like, man, if you don't take care of yourself, you will fall apart, literally fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. We had guys um, on that same note, like with MRSA, right? I mean, they would whether whether it's in our bay, you know, San Diego Bay, and you're doing water jumps, or you're just you know your your wetsuit chafes you on a long swim, and now that chafed area starts absorbing the environment, and you get MRSA in there. I mean, dude, I was I felt like that's what I was treating most of the time as a medic in a SEAL platoon. Um, I had one platoon where you know you know Glenn Doherty, so <laughs> he and I were the medics for several deployments together. And I'm not kidding you. We were lacerating, debriding. I mean, the craziest shit to these guys on a regular basis to keep the MRSA under control in our platoon. And there was moments when we were attached to ships. Then there was moments we're doing like the exercises in PI or running, you know, the Filipino seals down a Zambawanga and, you know, but everybody had MRSA the whole damn time. And I'm just, we're just trying to like, just contain it the best we could. And you're talking about, you know, an infection that can kill you. And we're uh, we're continuing to work with it. But you couldn't do that if you didn't have the antibiotics, the knowledge, the know-how, just all the basic tools or just, you know, hey, I got a lidocaine the fuck out of you and we're going to clean this thing out tonight. And it's going to suck. It's going to suck a lot. And you're probably going to cry like a baby. But, you know, we got to this is how it's going to go, buddy. And they're all like, OK. <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised I didn't get it because we were touching it. And, you know, oh, yeah, it was crazy. But imagine MRSA in an apocalyptic world or just, you know, you don't have a, jack, a dock in the box to go stop by. I mean, or you don't have antibiotics. I mean, holy fuck. You'd think uh, COVID was bad, right? Um, okay. The injury has slowed you down. And now the three hostels, right, from the gas station are closing in on your six. And they are hostile. You've confirmed that now. So, do you A, strike first with an ambush with the broken broomstick handle? <laughs> or B, you're going to go ahead and uh, negotiate again? Um, yeah, there's no negotiation now, especially if they have pinpointed 
my location, I would say break contact and try to evade and, and, and stay away from them. But if contact is imminent, then I'm going to set myself up for success and ambush is the right answer. Hey, strike first. That's right. With your broomstick handle that <laughs> Jeff was yeah, so kind, fun. just so kind to give you that. And, uh, <laughs> And yes, Mike, you have survived this podcast. Good job. Um, awesome. Awesome time with you. You are a wealth of knowledge and obviously have a ton of experience. And I appreciate you sharing it here. Where can people find you and learn even more from you and everything you got going on? Yeah, it's uh, it's all Phil Krause Survival. Um, PhilKrauseSurvival.com. Uh, most of the stuff that I'm doing now is off of social media and more focused on YouTube. So I have a show called Prep Life on uh, my channel, the Mike Glover actual channel on YouTube. And we have the Phil Craft Survival podcast and channel as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm Googleable as well. And you can find out all that stuff. Um, I have a book called Prepared coming out. I'm trying to I'm trying to be like you, Clint. This is my objective. <laughs> I actually remember talking to you about this venture, and it's it's been a long journey. I mean, I, we started talking about that years ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Finally, it's here. But uh, June 6th, Prepare will be uh, released, and you can pre-order it now on Amazon. But it's uh, it's Googleable as well. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so title is is Prepped Life? It's it's um the title is called prepared a manual for surviving worst case scenarios. Oh, okay, prepared, got it. Yeah, love it. And um, if you want, definitely send me a copy PDF, whatever you got, and uh, you know, I'll I'll push it on my end for you. I'd be happy to. That's that's awesome stuff, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for coming. And uh, like I say, every single episode, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and you stay safe out there. Uh